Wednesday, October 24th, 2012, episode 22 of Football Nation Today with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, available each and every Wednesday on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes Store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast in the iTunes Store if you have yet to do so. I also recommend while you're in the iTunes Store that you uh, subscribe to some of the other football shows here at footballnation.com. The Sportscasters, Monday Morning Huddle, hosted by a good friend of the program, David Holcomb. Uh, so I definitely, um, definitely uh, hope you check out the other shows we have available. In the iTunes store on footballnation.com, our goal here is to provide you with some innovative and fascinating football content, and hopefully you do that here each and every week on the Football Nation Today podcast. The World Series in baseball is beginning this week. Giants-Tigers, I host a Red Sox podcast without a curse, now published on Mondays throughout the offseason. I mentioned that, though, not to get in the quick plug for my other show, but because I just want to say public service announcement... Go Tigers in this year's World Series, and I'm not going to talk about how, oh, Detroit is facing economic hard times and how the city latches its hopes onto the Detroit Tigers who haven't won the series since 1968. No, I'm not going to give you a sappy story like that. I'm going to say you want to root for the Tigers because they have some excellent players on their team who deserve to win a World Series. I'm talking about Justin Verlander. A World Series win would be the icing on top of a Hall of Fame caliber career thus far for him. Prince Fielder, Miguel Cabrera, Triple Crown winner this season, obviously. Uh, Mike Illich is an owner, also owns the Red Wings. He spends money, a lot of it. He gave GM the free advertising in center field a couple of years ago in the midst of the economic downturn. Um, he's a guy who does great that work for the community of Detroit, spends money on the team. That's what we want all of our owners to do across sports. See, it's a cross sports reference. Tigers, Giants, Giants are a very likable team, obviously, but they won in 2010. Let's give the Tigers a turn. They lost in the ALCS last season, make it to the World Series this year. Go Tigers in this year's World Series. So that is my public service baseball announcement. Um, now on to football, Football Nation today, entering week eight. Can you believe it's already week eight of the NFL season? We have a lot to talk about this week. As always, we hope to ignite conversation uh, from the show. If you have any thoughts and any opinions that have been spewed here, and there will certainly be some outrageous ones spewed, I can guarantee you that. As always, feel free to send me an email. My email address is areamer at bu.edu. Also, follow me on Twitter. My Twitter name is at alexreamer1, or leave a comment on the show page on footballnation.com. In the first down segment today, each first down segment where we don't have a guest, uh, I try to come up with a little theme for my thoughts on the past week of NFL football and the week ahead of us of NFL football. This week, the theme is Alex was right. Yep, last week in the first on segment, I spoke with Chris Warner, Patriots writer for PatriotsDaily.com and BostonSportsMedia.com. Chris and I spoke about a number of big picture topics, and I want to revisit some of those points on this week's show and say that I was right, such as the AFC doesn't have any good teams besides the Texans. The Giants are still not only the best team in the NFC, but in all of football. I'll give you my case for them. Yep, better than San Fran, better than Chicago, uh, better than... 
Atlanta. I'm going to tell you about the Giants. And then also, last week we talked about rookie quarterbacks, their sensational play. Yep, rookie quarterbacks are good. Real good. I'll tell you why. <laughs> In the first down segment, a lot of RG3 splooging coming up. So look forward to that. Second down segment, the Patriots and Rams will play in London. A 1 o'clock Eastern kickoff this Sunday afternoon. It's the annual game in London. This thing is going to happen. This thing is going to continue to happen, obviously, on a yearly basis. And eventually, I'm telling you, a team is going to go overseas to London. I will tell you why in the second down segment. Third down segment, it's the big episode on a couple of interesting topics. Uh, the Chicago Bears beat the Lions 13-7 on Monday Night Football. And uh, some of their some Bears t uh, players are speaking up in defense of the one seemingly indefensible, Jay Cutler. Is this a sign that the Bears are really growing as a football team? Also, what's up with complaining coaches? Some coaches airing their dirty laundry publicly and not just taking it straight to the league office. We'll talk about that. And also, the Carolina Panthers are 1-4. They lost to Dallas this last week. Jerry Richardson fired the GM. Are more changes coming in Carolina? Do those changes include Cam Newton? Should they include Cam Newton? Warren Moon says a lot of the criticism Newton is facing is racially based. I have some thoughts on that. Then the fourth down segment, it's the big up slowdown. The New York Jets continue to misuse Tim Tebow, and by misuse, I mean not use at all. We'll be right back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. So, after falling to Green Bay two weeks ago, the Houston Texans obliterated the Baltimore Ravens 43-13 on Sunday afternoon in Houston. And this leads me to a point I discussed last week. The Texans are the only good team, like actually really good team, in the AFC this season. You look at their dismantling of the Ravens on Sunday. Matt Schaub threw for two touchdowns. Arian Foster ran for two touchdowns. Jonathan Joseph returned an interception for a touchdown. The Texans can beat you in a variety of ways. And unlike the Patriots, they have actually improved and greatly improved their defense over time. A couple of years ago, the Houston defense was an abomination. But what did they do? They addressed it via the draft. Brooks Reed, Brian Cushing, J.J. Watt, they acquired. Um, guys like D'Amico Ryans have gone. Mario Williams obviously is signed elsewhere, but the Texans have filled in the pieces. They filled in the pieces via free agency. Jonathan Joseph came over from Cincinnati via free agency. A legitimate, honest for goodness, number one cornerback. So as someone who follows the Patriots on a daily basis, look at how the Patriots defense has not improved for the past five years, and look at how the Texans defense has dramatically improved over the past five years, hell, even three years, and it shows you that rebuilding does not have to take forever in this league. If you put your mind to it, if you have a distinct strategy heading into the draft, heading into free agency, you can improve your team if you have money to spend a committed ownership group as they now have in Houston. Uh, but the Texans can beat you running the football. They can beat you throwing the football. They can beat you on defense making big plays. They are undoubtedly the class of the AFC. Um, the Ravens got crushed by 30 points this week. Terrell Suggs did return to the field. He recorded one sack and three tackles. Suggs was very active in his return, far more active than I and many others thought he would be. But <laughs> to state the obvious, the defense took a massive step back without Ladarius Webb in the secondary, without Ray Lewis playing regularly at linebacker. Um, and this is now Joe Flacco's team. 
And as I said last week on the show, Joe Flacco is going to take every opportunity to fail, and he's going to fail miserably. As he did this past Sunday, he was sacked four times through two interceptions as well. One of them, as I mentioned, was returned for six points by Joseph. Um, Joe Flacco is not capable of winning games by himself. He simply is not. And thus, Joe Flacco is not anything close to an elite quarterback. Uh, but luckily for the Ravens, they are still above 500. And in the AFC North, that seems as if it's going to be good enough to keep them in serious divisional title contention for the rest of the season. The Bengals lost to Pittsburgh on Sunday night, 24-17. To 17, excuse me. And the Steelers are incredibly beat up. They beat Cincinnati with their third string running back. Back up, back, up, back up offensive lineman on both sides of the line, the left side and the right side. And Troy Palomalu was out on Sunday night. He will be out for this week as well. Now, the Steelers are getting slightly healthier, but Palomalu is still out. There's a great graphic of it on Sunday Night Football. When Palomalu is on the field, it is a dramatically different Steelers defense than when he is not on the field. So, the Steelers are banged up. They're getting healthier, but they remain banged up with Palomalu out. The Bengals just cannot get over that hurdle. They are 0-6 against Pittsburgh, and uh, they've been 0-6 in the past two years. They're 0-6 against Pittsburgh and Baltimore are the Cincinnati Bengals, so they just cannot seem to take that step forward above the Ravens and Steelers in the AFC North. But that seems to be a division uh, my, uh, filled with mediocrity, especially so now that the Ravens' defense without Webb and Lewis is so depleted. How about the Patriots? Well, the Patriots and Texans do play at the end of December. That's a ma matchup to keep your eye on. But right now the Pats are 4-3. and three. They did defeat the Jets on Sunday, but they are not a great team. Far from it. We spoke a lot about the Patriots last week on the show, but quickly on their game with the Jets. They escaped with a victory Sunday afternoon after getting outgained and outscored in the second half. The defense, pass defense in particular, was atrocious once again, allowing Mark Sanchez to throw for 328 yards. And you know what? Sanchez, if he was in an if he was an apt quarterback, could have thrown for 428 yards. I really believe that. Sanchez's ineptitude saved the day for the Patriots. The amazing thing to me about Mark Sanchez is this will now be his fourth full season in the league, and he just cannot read a defense for the life of him. Uh, he makes bad reads. He doesn't look to the left side of the field, which is the mark of a good quarterback if they look to the left side of the field. And he just can't read pressure. He takes sacks like you wouldn't believe. He cannot judge when to get rid of the football. And I don't know if that's coaching, Brian Schottenheimer. Now, Tony Sperano's the offensive coordinator. Rex Ryan, of course, solely focuses on the defense. He's another one of these head football coaches who's more of a coordinator to the offensive side of the ball. He completely entrusts to his offensive coordinator. Previously, it was Brian Schottenheimer. This year, of course, it's Sperano. And... Mark Sanchez is still the same guy. Now, maybe Sanchez is beyond coaching. Maybe he's beyond reach. Maybe he just doesn't have the instincts of a legitimate NFL starting quarterback because this is his fourth full season as a starter now, and he cannot read a defense. He still cannot judge when to get rid of the football, when it's appropriate to take the sack. I mean, you look at two drives late in the fourth quarter on the drive where Nick Folk again eventually hit the game-leading field goal after the Devin McCourty fumble on the kickoff. Uh, Sanchez took a sack on that drive to set the Jets 10 yards backwards. That's the one thing you absolutely cannot do in that situation. Don't turn it over 
and don't get sacked and lose 10 yards and make it a harder kick for your kicker. And that's exactly what Sanchez did. He took the sack. And then in overtime, after the Patriots kicked the field goal on their opening drive, it's a second down, obviously four down territory there. Sanchez is facing pressure. What can't you do? You can't take a sack and you can't turn it over. And it, both things happened to Sanchez. He takes a sack from linebacker Rob Ninkovich and loses the football as well. What's wrong with throwing it out of bounds? What's wrong with throwing it away? Or what's wrong with just falling down? At that point, all right, it's third and 17, but okay, you have two downs to make up those 17 yards. Mark Sanchez takes sacks at the least opportune times. Still, four years in the league as a QB, he cannot read a defense for the life of him. He cannot judge when to get rid of the football. I also look at the overall offensive ineptitude of the Jets. It's pathetic to watch. It's ugly to watch. And the Jets are not a horrific football team. They're not 1-5. They're 3-4. And, and three of their four losses have come to Pittsburgh, um, San Francisco, and New England. At New England, at Pittsburgh. I mean, those are losses that should be acceptable. But it's just the way the Jets lose that makes you cringe. Even if you hate the Jets, you clench your teeth watching them play offense. Uh, Stephen Hill wide open, and the Patriots side of the field drops the ball. There was no one within 15 yards of him. Completely drops it. Another point at Dustin Keller. I believe this took place in the first half. Keller on the sideline. Sanchez lobs it up there. Keller has to leap to make the catch. I mean, Sean Green in the flat. Mark Sanchez threw that terrible interception. Alfonso Denard got the pick for the Patriots. Green completely underthrew that deep ball, underthrew it by 10 yards, and Sean Green was right there on the flat, wide open. And in the cases where Sanchez does decide to check down to Green, he can't hit him. He throws it to his left, throws it to his right. Sean Green has to make this spectacular diving catch on a five-yard dump off. And instead of running forward up the field, trying to get significant yardage out of it, he can't because he had to dive you know, several feet to his left to catch the off-the-mark throw by Sanchez. Uh, Mark Sanchez's ineptitude and the Jets' overall offensive ineptitude, which I think um, is a byproduct of Sanchez to an extent, uh, is really why the Patriots won the game on Sunday and why the de and, and why the Patriots defense bailed them out at the end. Um, but the other issue with the Pats that came up on Sunday, their other Achilles heel, is the offense could not close. Out of the Patriots' last five losses, going back to last season, obviously, they blew second-half leads in all five of them. They allowed a touchdown to Dustin Keller late in the fourth, but it was still a 23-20 lead, five minutes to go, Patriots with the ball. Here's that four-minute fourth-quarter offense run down the clock. And they couldn't do it. They went three and out. Brandon Lloyd committed an offensive pass interference. Lloyd and Brady are not on the same page. Lloyd also dropped a deep ball earlier in the game that would have been a surefire touchdown. He only had one reception on Sunday. There it is again. Patriots bring in another receiver on the outside, and Brady, for whatever reason, cannot mesh with that receiver. That's a problem with the team. So now it's first and 20. Brady rolls out of the pocket on first down, throws it right to Antonio Cromartie. Horrible throw, one of the worst throws I've ever seen Brady make. Then Steven Ridley runs up the middle for four yards. Now it's third and 16. Wilker goes deep on a fly route, and Brady overthrows Walker by 10 yards. Horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible four-minute offense at the end of the fourth quarter. Offense cannot close games. And once again, they left points on the field. They failed to score in the first half after the Sanchez interception and then the punter interference call. So the Patriots had two opportunities right there. Sanchez pick, 
They go three and out. Then they have the punter's interference call. They give up the ball again. No points. The Patriots offense needs to carry the defense. It needs to happen if they are to make any sort of run this season in the playoffs. And <laughs> Mark Sanchez's ineptitude saved the Patriots from another stunning defeat on Sunday afternoon. But maybe now we shouldn't be so stunned. The team cannot protect second-half leads because their offense cannot close. And the defense can't close either. But the defense hasn't been able to close for five years. So that's not a surprise. The offensive ineptitude late, though, relative ineptitude, I should say. Ineptitude suggests say the Pats are relatively inept. That is a surprise, though. And in the AFC West, the Denver Broncos are the best team in that division, especially if Peyton Manning is 80 to 85% of his former self, which he looked to be two weeks ago. Denver, of course, had a bye this week. Uh, that's the division which includes Oakland. They did defeat Jacksonville, who are totally banged up now. Blaine Gabbard out. Maurice Jones-Drew is out. <laughs> so we'll see about the Chad Henney experience in Jacksonville. Might, even, might be better than the Gabbard experience, but he won't have MJD by his side. And the Kansas City Chiefs are starting Brady Quinn. Yeah, Brady Quinn is the upgrade there over Matt Castle. The Chargers, obviously, are Denver's toughest competition, but the Broncos scored 35 unanswered points against San Diego two weeks ago. Uh, so, long story short, as I said last week on the show in the first down segment, yeah, the Texans are the only actual really good team in the AFC. They're the only team that right now could give the top teams in the NFC a run for their money. I believe that. And top teams in the NFC... The New York Giants, the Atlanta Falcons, the Chicago Bears. I am not including the San Francisco 49ers because, number one, the Giants thrashed the 49ers on the road two weeks ago. And then last Thursday night, San Francisco edges out Seattle 13-6. Game should have been played in 1956 with that score. Uh, the Niners have a great physical defense with Patrick Willis and Bowman and Navarro at linebacker and Justin Smith at D-end. But their offense is simply not good enough to win in today's NFL. It just isn't. They'll never win with Alex Smith. Seemed to take a big step forward last season, but he's taken a significant step back this season. His final statistics after last Thursday's game, 14-23, an interception, 140 yards, nothing, nothing to be impressed about. Uh, I am very interested to see the San Francisco game against Arizona this Monday night. Because that NFC West man, Arizona, Seattle, San Francisco, St. Louis even to an extent, those teams can play some real good defense. They can all get after the quarterback. And they all have inept offenses now. So expect another, you know, San Francisco may be 10-6. They're off to a good start. But to expect the 11-5 even, but to expect the Niners to make a deep run in the postseason, I don't see it happening this season because I think the NFC has a lot of top-heavy teams. I love Atlanta and what they've done this regular season. We'll talk about Chicago a little more in the third down segment, but that defense is unbelievable, and that's an offense that has the potential to be dynamic, unlike the San Francisco offense. They have these skill pieces there. Um, but in my opinion, the class of the NFC, as I said last week, remains the New York Giants. I put the Giants ahead of Atlanta because the Falcons haven't showed me anything in January. And that might be a cliche I'm falling back on. I know Matt Ryan's looked great this season. I know the Falcons' defense is the only defense in that NFC South that plays any semblance of defense. Atlanta, because of their weak division and weak divisional schedule, is going to get home field advantage throughout the playoffs. They may very well be the number one seed in the NFC, so the NFC Championship game will be in the Dome if the Falcons make it there, and that might give them a massive advantage. But 
If I was a betting man right now, I would still say the Giants at 5-2 and two are the best team in the NFC. Because, as I said last week on the show, they can beat you in a myriad of ways. Uh, they can beat you on defense. They can beat you throwing the football. And, as they showed this past Sunday against Washington, they can beat you late as well. They do the fourth quarter comeback better than anybody. They allowed a late touchdown throw from Robert Griffin III to Santana Moss on Sunday afternoon. Winning moments of the ball game. You say the Giants, they blew it, had a lead. Robert Griffin III is sensational. We'll talk about him in a moment. But then Eli Manning gets the ball back. A minute and change to go. Finds Victor Cruz on a deep route. Boom. Absolute money. So even when the Giants are down and out, even when the defense lets them down and allows a late fourth quarter game-winning touchdown drive, RG3 to Santana Moss, Moss's second touchdown reception of the game, even when the Giants' defense does that and falters, they still find a way to win. Eli Manning now has the cachet to not only be an elite quarterback, but to possibly be the quarterback you would select if you had to win a game tonight. Not talking about best for the full season. Not talking about best for the next 10 years. But if you had to win a game tonight, especially if you knew you were going to be down late in the fourth quarter in that game or in the second half in that game, who would you pick ahead of Eli Manning? Not Brady anymore. Can't run the four-minute offense. Rodgers, maybe. He had four TDs this week. I'd be hard-pressed to find someone over Eli Manning. And he showed you why again. With that TD pass to Cruz on Sunday. And quickly wrapping up the first down segment, speaking of rookie quarterbacks, yeah, they're good. More specifically, Robert Griffin III is real good. Uh, Andrew Luck did run for two touchdowns in Indianapolis's win over Cleveland last week, but RG3 is the man who stole the show for me. Uh, ran for 89 yards, threw for 258 yards, going 20 of 28 Sunday against New York. Uh, we know about the Giants' defensive line. We know about what they can do. Yeah, Jason Pierre-Paul got to Griffin a couple of times, some big sacks there. But the way Robert Griffin eludes defenders, one play in particular, he did like a Matrix-type move, eluding a defender, throwing on the run. Uh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely unreal to watch. And, you know, I, I don't think there's been a quarterback in this league who possesses the physical skills, the raw talent that RG3 does. And the thing about RG3 is he has the brains, too. He knows when to throw. He knows when to run. He knows when to get out of bounds. For the most part, the concussion incident a few weeks ago aside, uh, he's not Michael Vick. Michael Vick, when he got in the league, was a runner than a thrower. Robert Griffin, I firmly believe, is a quarterback. He is somebody who, yep, he runs the option, but that's a strength of his. He also can throw the ball 20 of 28 for 258 yards. Uh, Mike Shanahan has his guy. He's groomed the offense around Griffin. Alfred Morris, the running backs, had a very good season as well. Uh, running backs and Shanahan always seem to click. Uh, that, Bronco, that, that Redskins offense, excuse me, is fun to watch. If you haven't sat down and watched uh, a significant amount of a Redskins game this season, I'm not sure if they're on prime time in the near future, but it's definitely worth checking out because it's definitely a fun, fun, dynamic, there's that word again, offense to watch. And uh, you know how much I love dynamic guys. Uh, but with that said, it is still also easier to play quarterback in the league than ever before. So I'm sure that also has a little bit to do with the success of rookie quarterbacks this season. And hell, yeah, even the success of my man, RG3. But my goodness, what a rookie campaign it's been for him. Uh, he has taken the mantle from Andrew Luck, from me, as the most impressive rookie quarterback through seven weeks of play. 
And I know that's very important to all of you. Uh, second down segment, it's the biggest off-field NFL story of the week. The first down segment, of course, are a big segment. We also like to talk about the off-field stories. And this week, the Rams and Patriots travel to London. St. Louis is already there as of this recording. Patriots arriving later in the week. Um, the Patriots have gone before. They played Tampa Bay and London a couple of years ago. Patriots owner Robert Kraft said over the summer if it was up to him, the Patriots would participate in the London game on a yearly basis, something I'm sure his head coach Bill Belichick absolutely loved hearing. Not. Um, on the whole, these London games are not good games. Uh, the field is in bad condition. It's usually crappy weather. It's pouring, pouring rain, cold, raw temperatures. It's a long flight over. Players just want to leave and get back to the States. Uh, it's not a great product that goes to London. And it's also not great games. You had Patriots-Bucks a couple years ago, Patriots-Rams this year. Uh, not great games go over to London. Um, but through all that, through the bad weather, the bad field conditions, the bad teams, or bad matchups, uh, the bad state of play, not very aesthetically pleasing to watch those games, uh, the fans come out, and they come out big time. The fans have really responded well to this thus far. I believe it's another salad on Sunday. And that's why football taking place overseas on more than a yearly basis, but on a regular basis, such as oh, eight games per season, yes, a team overseas, is pretty much inevitable. Uh, we had a conversation about this with Daniel Hutchinson, Football Nation contributor over the offseason. Daniel and I sparred a little bit about this issue, but to me it's inevitable. Uh, NFL owners are always hungry for more money. And they've pretty much tapped out the revenue they can make here in the States. A move to Los Angeles is the exception. But outside of a move to L.A., there isn't much more the NFL owners can do in the States to uh, increase the revenue stream. The latest collective bargaining agreement and the way those negotiations went indicated that an 18-game regular season is not happening anytime soon. That is one thing the Players Association will not budge on. They don't budge on, you know, they're, they're, they're fine taking non-guaranteed contracts, but the 18-game regular season is something they will not budge on, which I think tells you a lot about how strongly they feel on that. Um, so with that out the window, at least for the foreseeable future, the next logical way for NFL owners to expand revenue is to add an expansion team overseas. Uh, that's the next move here. I don't know if it will take place in London. Maybe it happens closer to home, somewhere in Mexico. I don't know. Maybe the Bills move to Toronto full-time. I know there's a new proposal to have a waterfront stadium there in Buffalo. And I hope for the fans of Buffalo's sake, the Bills remain there. But we know that Bills to Toronto rumor will simply not go away. Um, I'm not saying it's going to happen in London. It could very well happen closer to home. But long story short, a regular football team, an international line, above, uh, above international lines, is happening. It's inevitable. It may happen in the near future. And yes, there is such a thing as overexpansion. I believe to an extent the NFL has already overexpanded. I voiced my displeasure about this before, but Thursday Night Football. Overexpansion as far as I'm concerned. Uh, those are not must-watch games. I can survive if I miss a Thursday night game. In fact, sometimes I elect to miss a significant portion of a Thursday night game. It's not a great product. It's an incredibly short week. Not great matchups. Not everyone still gets the NFL Network, and of course, that's why they put Thursday Night Football on a weekly basis now, so the cable companies are forced to get carry the NFL Network, because now there's a weekly game on there, makes it must-watch programming. I get it, and it's not harming the NFL yet, but over-expansion is possible. 
and maybe move overseas, maybe move internationally, is going to uh, bite the NFL. Maybe that's where the overexpansion hits its peak. But we're not there yet. And a uh, team overseas, doesn't have to be London again, could be closer to home, may very well be closer to home. But a team overseas is the one way to increase the revenue base. Because NFL owners are always looking to do that. And they've pretty much tapped out the states. Moving on to our third down segment. It's the Big Up Slowdown segment where I stay, uh, say a statement and then express my agreement or disagreement with it by saying Big Up or Slow Down. This past Monday night, Lions defensive tackle Nagumda Sue violently sacked Bears quarterback Jay Cutler. Bears receiver Brandon Marshall tweeted after the game, quote, A. Sue, what you did to Jay isn't cool. Great players don't have to do that. And tweet, Brian Erlacher, Bears linebacker, also said this week that it's time for the outsiders to lay off of Cutler. He said it in slightly more colorful language than that. But Brandon Marshall is Cutler's back. Erlacher is Cutler's back. So big up or slow down. These things are a sign that the Bears are coming together as a team. I say big up. Yes. It may sound corny, but in this case, corny is true. The Chicago Bears feel compelled enough to defend themselves and defend their controversial quarterback, Jay Cutler, in the media. They absolutely have Cutler's back, which is something that not many players across the league do. And that's a big step forward for this team, because one of the questions with the Bears, they were a preseason darling. I was on the Bears bandwagon this offseason. I'm on the Bears bandwagon now, as they've been very good throughout the regular season. But one of their questions was, how will Brandon Marshall coexist with Jay Cutler? How will Cutler coexist with the team? Will the team gel together as one? Will all the personalities mesh? And thus far, it looks like that's happening. And they're certainly playing like it. The defense is unreal. Erlacher's having a good season. Lance Briggs is having a solid season. Julius Peppers, that's a big deal to defensive end. That did work out, unlike Buffalo's deal to Mario Williams thus far. Charles Tillman, I still think, is one of the better cornerbacks in the game for my money. And that NFC North, entering the season, many projected it to be one of the NFL's strongest divisions, if not the strongest division. And it doesn't look that way right now. Minnesota continues to win. But they've turned the ball over seven times in their last three games. Uh, if it wasn't for John Skelton's absolute ineptness, there's that word again to describe a quarterback play on Sunday, the Vikings would have lost to the Cardinals. Uh, Christian Ponder did not play well last week. He has not played well the past three weeks, turning it over seven times. The Vikings offense has. Um, Detroit lost 13-7 to to Chicago on Monday night. They had that big comeback win against Philadelphia two weeks ago, but the Eagles have their own problems. Lions defense remains a major question mark, and the offense, for whatever reason, has not put it together consistently this season. They look like they've regressed from a year ago. Uh, Green Bay has won a couple of games in a row. Aaron Rodgers has found himself again, but that defense, which remains questionable, lost big defensive back Charles Woodson. He will be out six weeks with a major injury. Coach Mike McCarthy said Woodson is concerned about this latest injury. So the Packers got off to a slow start, and now are there without arguably their best defensive back, Charles Woodson. Um, this is the Bears' division to lose, and they are in firm control of the NFC North right now. I think they're, they are significantly better than Minnesota. They'll show that when they take on the Vikings in one-on-one matchups as the season progresses. Uh, so the Bears are playing well, and they are gelling as a team, as evidenced in Marshall, 
Colts and uh, Erlacher's defense of Jay Cutler this week. Now, 49ers head coach Jim Harbaugh said on Friday, even though the 49ers won the game, by the way, that he felt Seattle defensive backs were overly physical with the San Francisco receivers. Now, this follows comments made by Jets defensive coordinator Mike Patine, in which he said last week that the Patriots' hurry-up offense is borderline illegal because the Patriots do not give the defensive team enough time to set up, and they themselves are not oftentimes set up either. So, big up or slow down, is it cool for coaches to complain publicly about these issues? I say slow down. It is not cool. It is the opposite of cool. Take your complaints on matters like these to the league. Don't be a weasel and air your dirty laundry publicly. What are you doing? There's nothing more weaselly than a defensive coordinator like Mike Patine saying, Oh, they're hurry up offense. It's borderline illegal. Their guys aren't set. The referees don't catch it. Wow. What's Mike Patine saying when he announces that to the public? He's saying, Patriots better not run that hurry-up offense. The officials better put a stop to it if they do, because my defense doesn't have an answer for it. That's essentially what, that, what that's saying. And Jim Harbaugh, if your team scored 23 points instead of 13 points, would you have complained after the game on Friday? Oh, the Seattle defensive backs were too physical with my receivers. Football is a physical game, and a guy like Jim Harbaugh has a physical defensive team himself. He should like the fact that in some of these games, the referees are maybe letting a little physicality slip by, because that's how his team, the 49ers, are going to win a lot of games. Uh, with the way Alex Smith has played thus far this season, the 49ers are screwed if the, if, if the referees call every ticky-tack foul or penalty on defense. The 49ers don't want it to turn into a 30-plus point shootout. They want to make it a physical, ugly game. That's how they win, like they won on Thursday night, 13-6. to so, I say ultimately, these coaches, Harbaugh, Patine, and others who will do it as the season progresses, others who may have already done it this season who I, that I've missed, uh, shut your mouths. You have complaints, that's fine, it's acceptable, but take it to the league privately. Do not air your dirty laundry publicly. That's weak. Final question. The Panthers are 1-5. Owner Jerry Richardson fired the GM, and Coach Ron Rivera says more changes are yet to come. A lot of blame, of course, has gone to sophomore quarterback Cam Newton, who was in the midst of a terrible sophomore slump, and to compound Newton's problems, uh, his visible pouting, which did appear last season in Carolina's 6-10 and season, has become an increasing issue with those around the Panthers, the fans, and the media. Uh, former quarterback Warren Moon, though, believes that Cam Newton is getting unfairly criticized, and he thinks that race has been a factor into how Newton has been perceived. Moon said this this week uh, to Yahoo Sports, quote, I don't understand it. Moon said, I heard someone compare him, meaning Newton, to Vince Young. It's the same old crap. It's always another comparison of one black to another black. I get tired of it. I get tired of defending it. Close quote. Uh, people are eager to jump on Newton. There's no doubt about it. Big up or slow down. Is there truth to what Warren Moon is saying? That uh, fact that Cam Newton is African-American uh, has been a factor into how poorly he's been received thus far this season. Um, it's a tough issue, and it's obviously not an issue. We're going to do sufficient justice uh, addressing it in a quick segment here on third down, but quick synopsis here, I say yes. There is truth. There is some truth to what Rowan Moon is saying. 
Um, I think Cam Newton, a lot of the criticism he's facing this year is because he's simply having a terrible season. And I think the pouting that Cam Newton uh, is, is displaying on the field is, uh, you know, surpasses racial lines, if you will. I think if any quarterback was playing as poorly as Newton has played thus far this season and as pouting the way Newton does at times as well, uh, I think that quarterback would receive a lot of criticism as well. So uh, I don't think it's necessarily a race thing, but sure. I think in a lot of these issues, race plays a part into it. I think in a lot of these issues, race plays a part into how we perceive athletes. Uh, for example, a excuse me, a black player in any sport is never classified as gritty. For example, you know, when do you hear the uh, when do you hear a sports commentator, or hell, even a fan say, "Oh yeah, that guy's a real gritty player"? Never. Never, never, never. That's for whatever reason reserved for Caucasian players. Uh, though there are certainly African-American athletes, African-American football players who work hard, practice daily, uh, don't necessarily have the best raw physical skills, but make the most of their abilities, overachievers. There are a litany of those guys in sports. There have to be. You just never hear them described that way. So I, certainly, I think race does play a role, maybe not an overwhelming role, but it plays a subconscious role into how we classify athletes. I think there is a lot of truth to that. I think there's also a stigma to black quarterbacks in this league, as with a lot of the raw physical ability, but not the brains. And you could go down the list, Vince Young, Jamarcus Russell, the two biggest examples of that, Mike Vick to a lesser extent, certainly early in his career was an example of that. Um, and yes, those are concrete examples of it, but there's certainly a lot of white quarterbacks who possess the physical talent, but not necessarily the brains. I still say Jay Cutler is on that list, even though the Bears are playing so well this season. Uh, but you rarely hear anybody describe Cutler like that. Uh, you don't hear people compare Jay Cutler to Vince Young. Uh, now, Cutler has done more in the league than Newton, but he's at his low points. Most certainly he has. So, long story short, again, we're not going to do this justice in a quick big up or slow down, but yes. There is some truth to what Warren Moon is saying. I think race, though it doesn't play an overwhelming role in how we define athletes and define Cam Newton, uh, certainly does play a role which we cannot ignore. And that's obviously a segment that I would love to revisit at some point later on in the season, or maybe that's something we reserve for the offseason. But that's definitely, uh, we are definitely have not said the last words uh, about race and sports and race and football. I think it's a really interesting, deep topic. But moving on to the fourth down segment. Bit of a lighter segment, if you will, but still an important football issue. Uh, the New York Jets, of course, Mark Sanchez is the quarterback in his fourth year. We talked a lot about him earlier in the program, and I think he pretty much single-handedly handed that game to the Patriots on Sunday. There is a man playing behind Mark Sanchez by the name of Tim Tebow, but if you watch the Jets play... You would not know it. Tebow cannot find the field. He is not utilized in special wildcat packages. He is a blocker on punts, but this, the Jets don't fake it regularly enough for you to really notice Tebow. They do not call him in in goal line situations. Long story short, Tim Tebow is invisible, and my question is, why, why, why? Let me spell out a scenario for you. The Jets had a possession on the goal line in Sunday's game in the second half against New England. Right on the goal line. Second half. Need a touchdown. And they don't give it to Tebow once. Not once do they give it to Timmy Tebow to run up the middle. Run up the gut. Will his way to a touchdown. And the Jets of all teams should know Tim Tebow's aptitude for finding the goal line. For finding the end zone. He beat them. 
late in the season last year, and he was with the Broncos, leading Denver to second-half heroics. The Jets have seen it firsthand. And now they have Tebow on their roster. And they refuse to utilize Tebow to the best of his abilities. It is clear that Mark Sanchez has yet to find his footing. So my question is, why acquire Tebow if you're not going to use him at all? Why acquire Tebow if you're not going to use him in special packages? Why acquire Tebow if you're not even going to use him as a consistent decoy? Why acquire Tebow if you're not going to use him when you're on the goal line? You've seen firsthand late last season what Tebow does in the second half, late in games, in close games, in the red zone, near the goal line. You know he has a proclivity to find the end zone. And yet... You don't use him. All Tebow's doing by being on the roster is creating a distraction, as evidenced by me talking about him now. Tim Tebow last season took a mediocre Broncos team to the playoffs. I'm not saying he's great. I'm not saying he's elite. I'm, never, I'm not saying he will ever be elite. But I am saying Tim Tebow can be used in a better way than the Jets are using him. Tim Tebow deserves to find the field. And Tim Tebow will, mark my words, play quarterback in this league and win in this league. You can argue he's already done it. One playoff victory to his name from a season ago. Tim Tebow is certainly not conventional. Nor am I saying he ever will necessarily be conventional. But I am saying he can be a useful component to a Jets offense that desperately needs useful parts. The Jets are wasting him by sitting him on the bench for almost every single play, except punts, week in, week out. They're wasting him. All Tim Tebow's doing is creating a distraction. They're wasting him, man. Unleash the beast. Unleash Timmy Tebow. You may be surprised, just as the Broncos were last season when Tebow led them to the playoffs. out the show in the fourth down segment. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Football Nation today. Of course, published each and every Wednesday here at footballnation.com. As always, send me an email, areamer at bu.edu. Also, feel free to hit me up on Twitter, at AlexReamer1 is my Twitter name. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the week. Enjoy the weekend. Hallow weekend here at BU, here in college. So uh, dress up in your finest costume. Halloween is actually my least favorite of the quote-unquote party holidays, in my opinion. It's just too much work to go somewhere and party. I hate dressing up. All business all the time. So long. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your Halloween weekend. We'll talk to you next Wednesday when it'll actually be Halloween. Ooh, spooky. So long. Talk to you then next Wednesday. Football Nation today, only on footballnation.com.